right, so today, I said before we went on to, to chapter 8, we needed to have a discussion uh, that, I, that is really important, especially because we're in chapter 7, right? We finished up chapter 7. We've done a, a lot of in-depth discussion about it, but understand this. No matter how deep you guys think we're going and how much time it's taking us, man, we're not even scratching the surface of what all can be talked about and thought about on, on end times, on eschatology, so end times, the book of Revelation and prophecy pertaining to it. Man, not even close, okay? Uh, and I do want to say this, too, because I think it's important. I think that uh, I don't think end times is something that God wants us to focus all of our time, effort, and attention on over the course of our lives. The Bible isn't just about what's, you know, what does prophecy, what's happening in the world today that lines up with prophecy. I think it's important that, that we study it. I think it's important that we uh, think about it for, you know, and, and deal with it as, as we live, right, here. Uh, but I don't think that, I really, I really don't think that it should be an obsession uh, for believers. Okay? I think that we need to understand it, we need to delve into it, and we really need to see Christ in it and what he's, what, how he's drawing us closer to himself and, and, and our activity in the world. You know, We definitely need to know the seasons and the times, so I'm not dogging any of that, or I wouldn't spend as much time studying it either and, and teaching it. Uh, but I do think some, their entire theology, I guess is what I'm trying to say, their entire theology about the Bible and about Jesus and about their role uh, or, or the church's role here on earth today, some people's entire theology centers around this one topic, you know, and that's not healthy. <laughs> oh, you look at her friend. She, when she talks about Revelation, she says it's not to scare you but to prepare you. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, I think we need to bring that uh, into, into this. So I just wanted to, I wanted to put that out there and say that, that we definitely need to study prophecy. We definitely need to study end times. But don't formulate your entire theology around this one, one area of biblical study. That's really what I wanted to throw out there and get out there. Uh, but anyway... 54 weeks into this don't make it your obsession class <laughs> and we're not at chapter 8 yet but we're about to be uh, let's jump in so today we're going to have a discussion so we've got some scriptures we're going to read I'm going to read because we're going to read all of Galatians 3 when we get over here and probably the first 6 or 7 verses of Galatians 4 so I'll read that uh, we're not going to be reading these so Rick, if you want to get your finger on the first passage of Scripture that you'll read, it's going to be over here in Luke chapter 22, but not yet uh, verse 20. So, Revelation 7, we've clearly seen two groups, right? We've seen the Israelite, the 12,000 out of each tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel that makes up the 144,000, the Jewish people. We've seen that at the beginning of Revelation. We've had a long discussion about that, and guys, again, lots more that we could talk about and delve into, so I encourage you to go look at those things on your own. Uh, but then we also have this multitude that we were talking about, and that we talked about and ended up with last week. So who's this multitude of these 
nations, right? From every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation, a multitude that you cannot count is here before the throne, right? With palm branches in their hand, their robes are pure white, and, and it's asked. One of, the, one, of the, uh, one of the holy ones, one of the elders, right? Asked John, who is it? Who are these people? And not because he didn't know, right? It wasn't a, hmm, I wonder who these people are. John, could you help me out here and tell me who these are? It wasn't from that perspective, right? And John says, well, you know who they are. Tell me. And he tells them something. And we saw another area of translation, didn't we? Now, I do want to make a comment about that. Uh, man, when we see, and this is so important, when we see differences in translation in Scripture, in the Bible, because some of us use ESV, some use NIV, some use King James Version, on and on, NASB, on and on, right? Uh, the message, which the message is the most just, you know, thought, here's the general thought in a really, you know, kind of uh, paragraph, form, whatever. So anyway, uh, guys, that doesn't mean that, that the translators, the ones who compiled that translation or version of the Bible, that they're being nefarious, you know, that they're being, that they're doing something intentionally bad, okay? It doesn't mean that. It also doesn't mean that the Bible has errors in it, and in the sense of it, it, it contradicts itself, that it doesn't mean that either, okay? And class long, long time ago, we talked a little bit about about errors and things like that. There are errors, scholars will tell you, there are some errors that are in your Bible, okay? But it's not errors in theology. It's not errors in what it's talking about. They're typically going to be grammatical or, or, or a few certain things like that, or there's an addition of a or word. Language. Or language. Right. So when because you transliterate. says it one way, English says it another. Right, so you've got Chinese this. Chinese says something else. Exactly. So. So you've kind of got this contextual uh, aspect going on with how that culture, that group, you know, and that gets into a really interesting uh, study of church history. So now all of a sudden you need to study what? <laughs> you might want to know your church history, you know, because back in the, in the 19th century, your, your biggest group of scholars were coming out of Germany. Okay. Things like the, the, the fathers, the church fathers, Augustine, and some of these that we set on pedestal, you know, Martin Luther, Calvin. Some of these guys didn't know Hebrew at all. Okay? They didn't know it. They didn't have access to it. They didn't know Greek, or they knew very little Greek. So then that might make you want to go, well, then where were they getting their translation from? From the Latin Vulgate. Okay? Now you want to talk about some really interesting issues of transliteration and translation from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, okay, you got some interesting things. So this is just church history. But here's what it ultimately says, is through all of that, less than I think 1% of, of your scripture is, is got, you know, errors that make no change whatsoever to the, to, to the scripture as a whole. And that's phenomenal. That, by the way, speaks to the inspiration of Scripture in very phenomenal ways. So I want to make that clear because we're going to see some more, you know, especially 
when we when we start having this discussion a little bit about Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, for example. Okay, you're going to see another one. NIV's got a different way, along with several others, that they deal with that that leads you in a direction that's different from the original language. Okay? So we're going to talk about those things. Now, I like the NIV. Okay, there's nothing wrong with the NIV. So what I would suggest is don't get stuck either. When we're talking about filters, drop your filters. Don't get stuck with just one version of the Bible. When you're, doing, when you're doing your Bible study, you ought to be looking at different translations. You ought to be looking at, you know, and I'll bring you a chart. I've got a chart that shows all of your main translations and where they fall on the spectrum of from, you know, the most literal to the least literal, which I'll give you a hint, the Message Bible is on the, <laughs> is on the least literal side. But the Message Bible's design is to take the intent of the thought and put it in modern language in a way that's easy to understand in our current context. But you don't want to do Bible, in-depth Bible study with that, do you? No, because if you did, you'd be going in the wrong direction. Okay? So I wanted, I, I wanted to make that clear. Is there a particular trans, translation that, uh, that, that you recognize as being closest to the original Hebrew? Yeah, and I'll, I'll bring you that chart. So those, those are going to be the NASB, the ESV, all of the scriptures and what have you. Most of what I look at is the ESV, NASB, and the Amplified Bible. Now, the Amplified, you'll hear Shane <laughs> But what's great about that is the Amplified Bible gives you multiple uh, aspects of the meaning of a word or a thought that's in there, okay? So that, that's really good. Outside of that, you're going to go into a Greek linear Bible or a Hebrew linear Bible that none of you are going to want to sit and, and, and read. But anyway... Well, one, one more call. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, whenever I think there was some some issue with the translation, my my natural go-to is the King James version. Well, still, yeah. King James the King James version is actually more accurate than the NIV. So when you look on the chart, NIV is going to be up here, King James is going to be over here, and then below that, which as I'm going this way, <laughs> I'm getting to the actual original languages. Mm -hmm. Okay. The New King James in there? New so King James, New King James, NIV. <laughs> okay. All right, and then you get down over here and you get ESV, NASB, Amplified. Just you bring know, the blah, chart. Blah, blah. <laughs> so my wife just scolded me and said, "Just bring the chart." <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And most of us don't grab a hold of that. But little things like we read last week, right? One word. Yeah. Out or yeah, that's right. One word in your natural reading of that passage made you think past tense, which totally kind of changes the viewpoint of this multitude versus the actual language means are coming out, which means it's not over yet. Right? So that's all fascinating stuff, and we need to know that. Okay? So, so here's this question that we've got to talk about. Israel and the church. Okay? So here's, here's our first question. Are, are Israel and the church distinct from one another? Okay, and, and I'm talking about, let's think about the New Testament, think about Revelation, think about how we're approaching it, etc. Is Israel and the church distinct 
Or does the church replace Israel in God's program for the ages? Go ahead. What are you doing this for, man? Put your hand up this discussion. So, I say just yes throw it and out no. There. It's, yes if you no. think of it in terms of grafting in a tree to a native tree, and they do that because they want this native culture or variety of this to show out in the fruit tree. We'll take fruit trees. That's mostly what's grafted in. Then they grafted in. Well, that's just what we are. We are grafted in, and the Bible says that we are. We're grafted into the vine. Yeah. And then it tells, and it and it chastises us and says, you know, not to think that we're better because we are grafted in. And so I think that we need to keep that perspective in mind because this native vine, Israel, has always been there, and it's the covenant that God made with Israel. And nothing does away with that. And so we're grafted in. So I don't think the church is distinct from Israel in that respect, but I do think that the native vine is carries. That, that's a huge point. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with that, too. I, I think yes and no. I mean, I think there is a distinct difference, but at the same time, we're grafted in. And so you can see, a, you know, yes, we are, no, we're not. But, but there, to me, in my mind, there is a, is a distinction. And why, you know, why would this be an important question for us to grapple with? Because we're all going to be the bride of Christ. We're all going to be the bride of Christ. Well, and, and plus the church. Which, that's true. Church is raptured, too. Oh, what'd you say? Yeah. Church. Well, even the the church of that of the New Testament had Jews and Gentiles in it. It was not like the church suddenly became non-Jew. Well, but that, I'm not I'm not excluding the Jews in relation to the church. There's going to be Jews as part of the church that's going to be raptured, but still, Israel is, is separate from that. So you've made a further distinction. Such as? Oh, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> Such as just the one. Lands. Okay, that's a wonderful one. <laughs> the land. The, the land promise. But when the Tower of Babel took place, that's good. we that's were great divided answer. out into other worlds, other lands, away from Israel. There's a remnant in Israel, and then there's a remnant everywhere else. So, you, so, so the Tower of Babel is like a diaspora of the nations, right? You're all scattered. Well, they out. couldn't speak the same right. language and they had to be sectioned off or whatever. And it's just like living in Germany. If you're living in Germany and you speak German, but there's a northern German, and then you find out, oh no, those are Vikings or Norsemen, and they're the ones that conquered Rome in a big battle. And then they go on over into Scotland and Ireland. Right. You know. So, so you have mixing. It's a mixing. It's it's sure. a, a good whirlpool of Israelites. So so in the context of us today, not talking about the future, not talking about when it's all redeemed and it's all restored and we're we're in eternity, but right now. Why you know, these are all wonderful things that impact something. <laughs> and and one and this is just one aspect, okay? But would it be fair to say that the way that we think about these things and what we focus in on will impact the way that we interpret Revelation? Will impact the way that we interpret current events that are that are going on and how they impact prophecy? It does. 
several key things were, were said, and I'll deal with a couple of them as we get to Jesus them. is our shepherd, and the sheep will know him, know him when he calls. So once that happens, it doesn't matter what country we live in. So you got a new covenant thing going on here, right? Mm-hmm. you got a new covenant thing that you're describing. Man, all of that bears on this whole question, and this is a question that has been... Man, this question's been going back and forth for a long time. It's also the root of some anti-Semitism. And you know what? i I, I got to be careful saying this, but I'm kind of worn out with that word because of what it's been turned into. You know, anything that you say that could be construed as, or construed as negative towards an Israelite or a Jew, you're anti-Semite. Is that, is that true? Absolutely not. It's almost the same way with the word racist. Absolutely. Uh, we're seeing the exact same thing with, with the concept of racism. But anti-Semitism uh, has absolutely been around, right? I mean, if you don't believe it, look at Nazi Germany, right? Look at things that are happening even today that are starting to rear their head again. To me, that's true anti-Semitism, okay? But it's also true that if you pick out any person getting over into racism, any cultural group or any, any you know, uh, person, whether it's black people, Chinese people, white people, whatever, and you start to come against them because of their race, anti-Semitism and, and racism are the same thing, guys. I mean, it is just flat the same thing. Okay, And it can be done to any group of people, and I think that we lose sight of that. And now it's been turned into, you know, it's weaponized in a way. And some Israelites, which you got to remember, right? What percentage of Israelites are... are are orthodox. Not a, yeah. So I mean, you have this small percentage of the Jewish people themselves that even believe in God. Okay. So so you have this super majority of the Jewish people today that are atheists. They don't even believe in the God of their. Uh, they don't even believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of their father. And, and they still practice the festivals and the holidays, but that's secular. You know, they have a secular way that they practice that. They're not practicing it because it's like, it's of... It's like a, a, an atheist practicing, celebrating Christmas. The, yeah. They do it. They do it in Sure, Christmas. it's a holiday. Yeah. Man, I get gifts. Food's great. Love the, the vibe, right? It's fun. It's, it's festive. It's fun to give gifts. You know. That's right. So guess what? We as a church, we can't ignore that. And if you're hiding from that, well, then you're hiding from what the Bible talks about and what the Bible says, because the Bible is just as true for them as it is for you and I as Gentiles, okay? And the reason I bring this up is because this concept of if they're distinct, then it seems, right, that Israel might still have a national future, okay? And the word national, by the way, in Greek means your ethnicity, your race, okay? So so this national identity is totally impacted by what you think the answer is to this question. If you believe Israel is distinct from the church, remember, we're talking biblically, then you then that's going to inform you into how you see prophecy and revelation and what you think Israel's role is. And here we are in chapter 7. We see something very distinct about the Israelites, and we're interpreting that a certain way. And then we see something very distinct about the church, or the mul- or not the multitude, which all these positions believe is the church. Okay, except 
We all believe, right? If it's every nation, tribe, and tongue, every single one of them, then in that multitude, who is included? The Israelite. The believing Israelite is included. You cannot forget that. So to your point, it's kind of a both and, right? So why do we allow it to have such impact on how we determine or read into Scripture things that may not actually be there? They may, they might be, but they may not be, right? Go ahead and just blurt it out if you got something. Well, see, uh, in the future, Israel. I mean, he's going to bring Israel back to him, and you know that's that's out there to me in my mind, right before the But end. why? Why is that out there? Why is that part of it? Is still this idea that Israel is has a separate identity from the church? Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. And so. If they have a separate identity from the church, then you can go back and look at some prophecies or look at some things and say what? There's still, there's still fulfillment that needs to, be happen, needs to happen. So let me ask you a question. Since Jesus died on the cross, have there been Jews who believe? Yes. How many of them? Hopefully a bunch. God always promised a remnant, and the church was born from the Jewish remnant. Okay. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in the New Testament at that time. And that remnant of Jewish believers are still getting saved to this day, and we've got 2,000 years worth of it. You think that that might be just, we have no way of knowing. None of us can sit and count and go, well, it's X. But do you think 2,000 years worth of the Jewish remnant getting saved and believing in the Messiah and being added to the church, do you think that that group is probably the size of a nation? So now, all of a sudden, when we step back for a moment, just looking at one passage in chapter 7 and coming to a realization about what's being said there, we can bring a different interpretation to God saving the Jewish people. Okay? Unless we're really stuck. And i got to do this for real. I know. <laughs> no, I'm no it's, it's wonderful because, yeah, I... I some people are stuck there, right? And, yeah. and I'm not saying you shouldn't be. I'm not saying that you're wrong. So, okay. no, I don't know that. But I'm trying to press you a little bit. Maybe I'm a little bit stuck there. But I tell you what, though, but through this, uh, uh, through this study, you certainly opened my eyes to several. Well, Holy Spirit did. I'm just kind of presenting information. <laughs> but, yeah, no, that's right. All of a sudden, we got to start stepping back a little bit. And that's the goal is to say, hey, hold tight. Things are not so self-evident, and that's a problem today. We think that the scripture, if you hold certain, you know, if you're a dispensationalist and a futurist and all that, you think, I mean, it's taught. And you can't get around this. That stuff's taught almost like it's self-evident. You know, Eric, if you don't get this, if you don't see this here, then you're not clearly viewing scripture. It's self-evident, except it's not, right? I like to pick on it. Because they can handle it. Right, right. Not that the rest of you can't, you know. <laughs> he's like, he's coughing back in time. <laughs> Larry's like, don't pick on me. <laughs> All right, so, so we, we've got to recognize this stuff is not self-evident. And there are multiple ways to approach the scripture. And the more, and you guys, us here, we're living in an incredible time. You have so much access to archaeology, to language, and all the things that have been learned. Every new discovery 
teaches something more about these languages and the cultural context of them, etc. And we and we get to view the scripture more clearly in ways that Martin Luther, John Calvin, Augustine, the reformers, all that, they didn't have those things at all. Brilliant men and, and, and women of scripture. But in, in, our, in all the uh, archaeological uh, findings now that keep Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. It's not taking away anything. Yeah, no. It's amazing. We live in an exciting time. This is the thing I love about technology. I love the fact that I've got a library of you know a thousand books on theology and doctrine and just all these different things and thinkers that I can I carry around in my phone. You know, I mean that's exciting stuff and just how fast we can cross reference and look things up and see different positions. So you are without excuse. Sorry if you didn't know that you do now, so you're really without excuse. <laughs> okay, so so we're without excuse. But here's the deal: this idea that's key. See, this distinction concept is key to any view of rapture. What? Why is that? You actually said it, Rick. Any view of rapture that we have, because you guys recognize, right, that the word rapture is nowhere in Scripture? You know that, right? Okay. The word rapture is not there. I'm not saying the concept isn't there. The word rapture is not there. Okay. That's, that's something that we, that's a concept we've created to explain some passages of Scripture and in gathering. Okay? One will be left, and it doesn't say one will be taken up. It says one will be taken. Well, which one's taken? Does the Scripture tell us? What, what if it's the non believer? Well, yeah. It could be, it could be the judgment. Yeah, oh, wait. Oh. Whole another way to look at that passage. Well, I mean, it looks both ways. I mean, right? It's not so self-evident that we just assume because we believe in a rapture, and we believe in a rapture because, after all, Israel and the church are distinct. And why does that matter? Who's raptured in the current view? Who is it? The church. It's the church. It's the church. Okay. And what, and don't misunderstand when I said current view. I'm not implying that that's not. Even, I'm saying, this is what we know. We all know this, right? It's the church that's raptured. And it's is not, that Israel? It's not the Methodist church or the Baptist church. It's, it's the church. It's the people's heart. It's, it's the believer. Believer. Right, but is that the nation of Israel? Is the nation of Israel, is the Jewish people, because they're the chosen people of God, are they included in that rapture? I believe the believers, the believers are. are. Amen. So now, so we keep having this blending of the Jewish believers, they're part of the church. Does anybody argue with that concept? It's kind of hard to, isn't it? Yeah, I think she just made a good point. I mean, that's the remnant. That's the remnant. And they're the church along with Gentile believers, right? So what keeps taking this prominence? The church. The church keeps being prominent. God's not a respecter of persons, right? So, why do we insist that there, why, why does there need to be a distinct national Israel with a separate prophetic future from the church? Why? Why? Have you ever wondered that question? Why, why is that needed? I mean, everybody in here just confessed that believing Israelites, believing Jews are part of the church. No different than you and I. You just confess that. 
So what in the world, why is there this need for a separate national prophetic thing to happen with the Israelite who are clearly not believers, who if they stay in that mode, what's going to happen? Where are they going? Along with the unbelieving Gentiles too, right? So why is there this incredible, man, we've got to have this national Israel. There, there is no identity that matters outside of being the church. Except that God still has to fulfill his promises to We have some promises. Even though they're not, you know, they are his chosen people. Okay, so hold those two thoughts and let's see. One more thought. <laughs> no more thoughts. We can't take it. <laughs> Well, in keeping with it, it's a promise. It says that this is Romans 11. Let uh, me just read yeah, Romans, several read verses. 25. Read um, the Amplified Version. Ampl- it's the, no, the HS. Holy Christian Standard. Oh, read you, you just went over here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> if we had time, I'd read the Amplified. <laughs> but it says, and, uh, and even they, talking about the Israelites, uh, Romans 11, 23, if they do not remain in unbelief, um, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, because God has the power to graft them in again. For if if you were cut off from your native wild olive against nature and were grafted into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So that you will not be conceited, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. Oh, so that man. And and in this way, all Israel will be saved. It is written, the liberator will come from Zion. He will turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Uh, Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable, as once uh, disobeying God and now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too now have disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that you also now may receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. Okay, what was the book of chapter? Romans, Romans 11. 11. Yeah. Well, starting in 20, verse 23. All right, so right here we have an olive tree, the natural olive tree, which is Israel. Right? And then we have the wild olive tree, right? Which is who? That's Gentiles. That's the rest of us. And the branches from the wild olive tree are grafted into the cultivated, the the natural cultivated olive tree. And so we become one man. So this this is a third option. Okay? And we've talked about this some in the past. This is that third option. Because in dispensational theology, here's where it went, going back to the anti-Semitic view. Is this got so bad? This got so bad, this position was so bad that Israel is distinct from the church that in the church we started persecuting the Jews. In the church. It got so bad that, no, you're completely separate. You have no part in the church. You have a separate destiny, separate prophetic plan God has for you because he's got to bring those out. But no recognition of the believing Israelite coming into the church and being part of the church. Okay, This is during the Reformation period, guys. Is that more of the Protestant? Yes. 
Yes. During the Reformation, this wonderful time that we saw, man, so much anti-Semitism got ingrained that, you know what, that anti-Semitism led to Nazis. And the church has a role in that. That's how distinct this separation came. Because they ignored. You go from the Reformation, it goes like this. You go from, you know, the remnant Israelite who is the first church, and the church was birthed out of the remnant Jew who believed. So you have this tree, it goes like this, and then for about the first 150, 200 years of the church, it looks like this. You start getting to the three and four hundreds, it starts going like this, and man, you start hitting the Reformation, and it's a, it's a chasm. Israelites on this side, that's that branch. The church on this side, nothing connecting them in between. And God's it, prophetically, man, it's going to come like this. And we're in that time, by the way. Okay? So, so this is a bad deal in one sense. And then in the 19th century, it led to this whole futurism dispensationalism. This is new. In the church history, this is a new position. Okay? Some will make a really loose connection to Augustine. Okay? And then there's a Jesuit priest somewhere in there around 1,450 that really made this connection. But all in all, this concept is, is, is new. And so, in order, even the idea of a rapture, the way that we understand the rapture today, is a fairly new construct. And it comes from this. Because it's the church that gets raptured, not the Jews. Okay? Except, well, we have some problems with that. It's a church, but it's really the believers. Well, the Bible calls the believers the church, right? Yes, but I mean, that would include, as we said earlier, the Israelites. But if you were to go take a survey in churches today and you use the term church, the biblical term church, is the natural thinking of a person going to be, oh, the Jews are involved in the church? Think about that and be honest about it. Probably not. Probably not. They're not going to think of the Israelite or the Jewish people as part of the church. Okay, That's way, way down the list. They're going to think of Protestantism. They're going to think of the Gentile nations, etc. But yet God's people in the Old Testament was the church. right? God made a series of covenants. So this is where we start getting into this separation. God made a series of covenants with Israel. And those covenants, and understand I'm showing you something here. This is with Israel. Okay? He made a series of covenants with Israel that had promises embedded in those covenants, certain promises with each one of them. And those promises, all of this, these covenants created and certified this bond, this special relationship with Israelite. And it starts after the Tower of Babel. God disinherits the nations at the Tower of Babel, puts them under the other Elohim, and then God says he's going to make a people for himself, an inheritance for himself. And he calls Abram out of Ur, the land of the Chaldees, and makes a promise, a covenant with Abram, who is not an Israelite. <laughs> Abram is a Chaldean. Okay? There were no Israelites until God makes a promise with Abraham and a covenant, and then Abraham and his wife, right, start to have kids. And those kids become the nation of Israel. That's when Israel didn't exist before that moment. Okay? These promises is where we get stuck. And, and we can't read all of this. 
but I want to, you can go back and read for yourself. So you have the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? There are two covenants before you ever get to Abraham. At least. You got the covenant with Noah, right? Noah wasn't Jew. Okay? Noah was not an Israelite. And then before Noah, who do you have a covenant? Who do you have a promise made to? Adam and Eve. Who are not Jewish. Adam and Eve are not Jewish. They're not Israelites. Noah and his sons were not Israelites. Okay? So those covenants, you, I don't have those listed here. But those pre-exist these covenants. These covenants are specific to the Israelite people. So you have the Abrahamic covenant, you have the Sinai covenant, that's Moses, okay? And you have the Davidic covenant, David, each of these reiterating the other. And then you have the new covenant. Woo, wait a minute. The new covenant is actually in the Old Testament? Yes. Okay? You have a prophesied new covenant, and the bulk of it is found in Jeremiah. You have it. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. The new covenant was prophesied. Do we have an order going here? You start reading those, and these promises start getting really interesting. Because remember, who are these two? <clears throat> Except, is that one just to Israel? It's not. That promise to Abraham is not just to Israel. This one is to Israel. This one's also to Israel, but it starts bleeding over when you get here into the new covenant. And now you have the new covenant. So we got to hurry up because the church bells are ringing. <laughs> I got 10 minutes. Can we do it? I think we can. You guys will wait a few more minutes over, won't you? Okay. So you've got to, you got to frame this. You've got to get this in your mind. At who these things are spoken to, okay? So, in this whole national or ethnic, when you're thinking national, Israel, we're not just thinking about a government, okay? And that's why I was telling you, national is, it's race, it's ethnicity, okay? So when you see these nations rise against nation, what does that mean? Ethnicities rise against ethnicities. And it separates them. Nation will rise, in Matthew 24, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. You have two distinct separations. Ethnicity will rise against ethnicity and governments will rise against governments. Whoo, wait a second. What are we living in? Oh my goodness, it's getting bad. Okay? It's not the first time, okay? So, so you have, think of Israel as an ethnic group, a nation, right? <coughs> These covenant promises, are they to them as the focus today, after this new covenant? Prophecy and Jesus coming on the scene, okay? Are the promises solely focused on Israel even today? Or are they focused on the church? Now that is a question you've got to answer. Okay? And how is your answer to that going to impact this? Remember, just one example. If, if we're dealing with non-believing Jews, 
what in the world is the big deal about their governmental identity as a country and as a non-believing Jew? Why do we have such focus on that? Why does that matter? Well, the only thing we can get to, and I'm going to skip ahead for a second, is this right here. You guys have, keep saying it, right? There's two questions that you have to think about. Are these promises conditional? Yes. <laughs> Ooh, boy. Man, are they. They are seriously conditional. In other words, Israel, you must be X and do X in order for me to fulfill my promises to you or my covenants with you. And oh, by the way, there's a difference between some of these promises and covenants. Abraham, that promise, that covenant that you're going to be the father of a multitude, and I'm paraphrasing, multitude of nations and your seed and all this, that has no condition to it. <laughs> There's no condition given to Abraham. Abraham was counted righteous because what? He believed. he believed God. And God made this covenant. He created it and he certified it. How? Man, animals were split in half and God's spirit and the bolt walked right between them. And God says, I'm going to do this. No condition. That one, lots of conditions. This one, Aspects of it when it comes to physical David and his sons, lots of conditions. Okay, But one condition or, or one promise that has no condition that God's going to fulfill, for example, is an everlasting seed on that throne that's fulfilled in a Messiah. And that has nothing to do with David or Israel or what they did. It has to do with God's promise to Abraham and, his, and certain things he said in here. So are the promises conditional? And here's the other one. And it's the big one. When you cut it all out, it all comes to that right there. We're the land promises fulfilled. Okay? Now, before I'm going to jump over here, well, actually, let's read these passages real quick. You guys with me? Okay. Somebody, all right. Rick, you've got Luke 22 20. Hold tight. Somebody go grab 1 Corinthians 11 25. Do I have a taker? Come on, quickly now. Huh? You got that, Pam? Somebody grab 2 Corinthians 3.6. You got that. Somebody grab Hebrews 8.13. You got that? Somebody grab Hebrews 12.24. Who's going to get that one for me? You got that? All right, so Hebrews. So here's the deal. Jesus made it clear that he came and, and fulfilled the new covenant, right? So go ahead, Rick. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. 2 Corinthians 3, 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Hebrews 8.13. And that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is beginning obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Hebrews 12.24. You guys hearing all this? Hebrews 12.24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, uniting God and man, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks of mercy, a better and nobler and more gracious message than the blood of Abel which cried out for vengeance. Jesus has made it clear the new covenant is here. 
and it's fulfilled in him. And the old is obsolete, and the new takes it. Galatians 3. I'm going to read this. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So remember, when we're talking about law, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Mosaic Covenant, right? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, doing the law? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, now we have the Abrahamic covenant. That promise was made to him based on no conditions. Conditions, no conditions. Okay? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. What? It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall be all the nation, or in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously. That does not annul that. Okay. covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void for if the inheritance comes by the law it no longer comes by promise so if the inheritance comes by the law it no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise why then the law? it was added because of transgressions until the offspring who's that? Jesus, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. God was the intermediary. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, 
then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the very scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no longer or is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Amen. Okay? Guys, here's the deal. Did we inherit all the promises? Did every believer, whether Jew, Gentile, or not, well, that's it, Jew or Gentile that are believers. They become the church, the body of Christ, his family. Under the new covenant, did we inherit all the promises? Yes. Well, then how in the world is there a, why is a land promise, which, by the way, uh, was actually fulfilled during the time of Solomon, why is that our focus? Why is this non-believing anybody have such impact on the way that we're seeing what God's trying to tell us? Think about that. Now we're going to move to chapter 8 unless you want to go one more week and delve into that question a little deeper. What do you want to do? Chapter 8. <laughs> chapter 8, my wife's tired of this. I think we ought to go deeper. There's one deeper, one move on. We're at a 50-50. But that won't be here next Sunday. Oh, well, I guess we'll go deeper and we'll push off uh, chapter 8 one more week. All right, Lord, thank you, Father. I pray that you just minister to our hearts and strengthen us and help us to just grab a hold of what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.